on the block on demand this is on the block with brent axe back at you here on the block espn radio so glad to have you wednesday getting over that hump baby mike 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 what day is it mike I love that that commercial's back in our lives. I never got tired of that commercial. Every time it comes on, I belly laugh at it. It's great. Mike, 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 Mike. Just never get tired of that. Blindside coming up later on this hour. Talk a little more SU hoops as we cruise along here. But Baseball Hall of Fame induction 2019. Still on our minds today. Not a big surprise that Bonds and Clemens didn't get in. I think the percentage... Threw me off a little bit, and we were very clear to note yesterday, you know, Ryan Thibodeau, who tracks this on Twitter, he gets the public ballots, the ones that want to be made public, and he kind of says this this is how it's trending, but the percentages will drop because when the actual class was announced at 6 o'clock yesterday, there's a number of ballots that aren't made public. So it was pretty much everybody that voted for Bonds or Clemens wanted it to be known that they voted for Bonds and Clemens or one of the other which they've become attached at the hip. It's Bonds and Clemens at this point. I don't know how you can vote for Bonds, but then say, eh, Clemens guy, I'm going to leave him out. No, if you vote for one, you kind of have to vote for the other at this point. So those that did not want their ballot revealed publicly yesterday, it will be they're all revealed publicly next week. They're the ones that want that under the rug for as long as possible, which, again, they get revealed publicly at some point, so I'm not going to be too critical here, but if you're going to vote for something like the Baseball Hall of Fame, a very public thing, something that we all can go to and see and experience, you should put your ballot out there publicly. It's been interesting to see a number of writers that have backed off in recent years because they don't like the influence they have on something like this. Look at the process for football. It's 45 or so sports writers in a room and they argue all day and then they figure out their five Hall of Famers with the two Veterans Committee ads. The fact that Harold Baines is going to be on the same stage with the first unanimous Hall of Famer in Mariano Rivera. I mean, look at the gap we have here. Look at the gap we're going to have in Cooperstown this year. The first unanimous Hall of Famer, which is patently absurd. That we've come to 2019, all the other names that have come before Mariano Rivera, the reason the Hall of Fame exists because of Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, Mickey Mantle, Cal Ripken Jr., the fact that Ken Griffey Jr. recently didn't get a unanimous vote, Tom Seaver, okay, I can go through the names, which would be all of them that came, not all Hall of Famers, but we're talking about the elites, the guys that are just like, how do you even have to think about this? Which Bonds and Clemens, Clemens and Bonds, would be, had it not been for that you know, little PED thing, right? So we're going to have Mariano Rivera, the first unanimous Hall of Famer, and the first truly unanimous, what the hell is he doing here guy, and Harold Baines on the same stage. Like, some of the names that are, like some are questioning Edgar Martinez. We can have a discussion about that. It took him a while to get there. He kind of, you know what saved Edgar Martinez was analytics. Taking a second look at what he did in his era, how important his position is, where he ranks, 
That's where the younger voters that came up through baseball, used analytics in how they covered the game, were influenced by that and kind of told the older guys on the Baseball Writers Association, like, you should kind of look at this. It's like teaching grandpa about your cell phone. Like, Look what you can do. And once grandpa understands that, then he's down with it, right? Trust me, I'm not being critical here. I'm 40, and I'm the oldest four-year-old I know. Like, I, there's, there's certain things that I just don't understand about this world, and I don't want to, right? Some things my daughter says, she tries to show me, and it's just like, like give grandpa back his rotary phone, okay? So those older voters that don't, you know, what's them darn analytics? I don't, uh, war, I'll tell you about war. I was in WW2. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. Mike Messina, I think, fits in that category for a lot of people. But when you look at the numbers relative to the era he pitched in, the smaller ballparks, the juiced-up players, the juiced-up baseball, yeah, yeah, that's a Hall of Fame pitcher. But the greatest test of a Hall of Famer is, I say the name, what's your gut reaction? At no point would Harold Baines ever come up in that conversation. If I said to you, listen, just... List as many base. I'm going to give you the next three hours, and you're going to just say names that are baseball Hall of Famers. So Bonds, Clemens, Rose, the guys that aren't in, they're going to come up. And you're going to think about the guys that are there, Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, Ted Williams, Cal Ripken Jr., right? Obvious picks. Mariano Rivera this year. Then you're going to get to those marginal guys. Well, you know, it took Edgar Martinez a while to get in. It took Jim Rice a while to get get in, but he got there. And then you start, when you walk through the Hall of Fame and you see the names and you you say that to yourself, it's like, wow, oh yeah, that guy's a Hall of Famer. Should he be? Debate and discussion is one of the great things about sports. Numbers are so important to baseball. So you can kind of make the case. In no way, shape, or form can you put an argument in front of me that Harold Baines is a Hall of Famer. He's not. Not by looking back at his career with analytics, not by any measure is that man a Hall of Famer. And I don't want to disparage Harold Baines. He had his moment. He's in no matter what I say. But it's funny to me that you're going to have him and Mariano Rivera on the same stage this year. That represents the gap between one end of the spectrum and the other when it comes to baseball Hall of Famers, which I guess makes it an interesting discussion, but I'm just at the point where it's like, listen, let's bring Metallica in, play a few songs at the induction weekend with Mariano Rivera coming in. Let's spice this thing up. It's a museum in Cooperstown. It's a great I said this to Lee Baldwin earlier in the show. We were doing our stock update if you're just joining us. I'm having this conversation in a radio studio in Syracuse, New York. If I was having this conversation sitting on Main Street in Cooperstown, I might feel different because it is a special place. When you go there, you get swept up in it. You just become a kid again. You think about baseball, how important baseball is to that town. I was actually talking about this with Seth yesterday. I'm like, look, the Hall of Fame is the anchor. It's the reason Cooperstown is noted in the world, but... When you're in Main Street, when you are there, any time of the year, but it's great to be there in the summer when the inductions have my favorite time of the year is the fall in Cooperstown. You feel it, you experience it, but the town is about baseball. Like the Hall of Fame is obvious what it means to it, but it's almost become more about 
just baseball and the history. And, you know, we all know, every one of us knows that baseball was not invented there, right? That that's not where baseball originated. But we all go along with the story. We all go along with the fairy tale. Nobody cares. That town and that area has almost become more about a celebration of the sport, not the elite players that are in this building at the end of Main Street. When you put people like Harold Baines in, when you keep people like Bonds and Clemens, and again, I am on the other side of this, but you can make the case Pete Rose, what are we doing here? Now it's just become the selective, exclusive club that we decide who's in or out, which is fine. You can do that, but if you truly want to make it a story of the history of baseball and keep all these people out, then what are we doing here, right? Let's go to the phones. See what you think. 437-7644 is the phone number. And that is the, I have never backed off more on Pete Rose than right now. Like I'm at the point, I used to be just adamantly against Pete Rose being in the Hall of Fame. In the actual plaque room, Like there is representation of Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame. There is representation of Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds and any other player that's got the scarlet letter on him right now in the actual Hall of Fame, in the museum. Like, if they kept them out of that area, you, you're really taking a hit on your credibility. But if they say, well, that's great, we'll tell the story of the game and what they did out here, but in this sacred room where we honor people as official Hall of Famers, you can't get in here. I've always been fine with that compromise. But one day they'll get in, and when they do, just put it on the plaque. It's at the heart of it, what you are doing is you are telling baseball story. Now, what the Hall of Fame has going for it is, because some will say, well, how can you tell the story and the history of the game without Bonds, Clemens, and Rose in that room? And my answer would be, it's so obvious what they did that it doesn't matter. They don't need to be in that room. Their, their, their accomplishments are so historic that they almost don't need to be you almost laugh at the Hall of Fame, like, you can put him in there all you want. Who doesn't know what those three did and what they meant to the game? Let's see what you think. We'll start uh, with Raymond in Utica on the block, ESPN Radio. Raymond, how you doing, bud? All right. Ray, you're on the air, Okay. Buddy. Okay. All right, guys, when you call in, Ray, I'm going to put you back on hold, okay? When you call into the show, make sure you turn the radio down in the background. Haven't had to say that for a while. We are on a delay, so if you've got the radio on in the background, it's only going to confuse you, so make sure you turn that down when you chat with us here. Rob the goalie, go five-hole on me, buddy. You know that rule. Hey, Brent, man. I'll tell you, my mom always tells me, turn the radio down, I can't hear you because <laughs> hearing aids. But uh, I just was just thinking about this little Harold Baines point that you're making, and uh, when you say Edgar Martinez, I so, I associate that Seattle Mariners. When you say Barry Bonds, Giants, Pirates. When you say McGuire, I think Cardinals. When you say Harold Baines, I'm like, who did he play for? Was it the Indians, the Padres? I don't even know. Right. So, yeah. I mean, he's going to go on with the White Sox, but yeah, that's it, it's a mixed bag, certainly. Yeah, and uh, I think... I can. I wouldn't lump Pete Rose in with uh, Bonds and McGuire or Clemens, but 
I think Pete Rose. I mean, if Ty Cobb's in the Hall of Fame, eventually they got to get Pete Rose in there. So he gambled. That's not good. But he wasn't taking performance-enhancing drugs, which gives him an advantage. I think Rose should be in there. Well, Pete is a matter of the discussion is it's the integrity of the game thing. As a manager, you directly can impact the outcome of the game, and you've got money on it. And this is a sport that almost didn't exist because the World Series was rigged. And Pete walked by a sign every day and knew how that was a cardinal sin to bet on the sport. People say, ah, it's just gambling. No, Pete wasn't betting on football games. He was betting on his own sport and could influence the outcome of it to benefit that. So that's why that's such a big deal. It was the biggest rule in the game. And what do people always say about Pete Rose? Charlie Hustle, nobody played harder and loved baseball more. So my answer to that is, you're telling me the guy that loved baseball more than anybody broke its sacred rule hundreds of times and admitted it and signed off on his suspension, which he didn't think would be a lifetime ban, certainly. But And then, 10 years later, or whatever the, the time frame was, it was about a decade, had to sell some books. So he says, oh, you know what? I did do it. You know what? Sorry. We know you've got all the hits. We know you probably should be in here, but, you know, you made your own bed. Now you got to sleep in it. That's the difference. Bonds and Clemens cheated. Bonds and Clemens did something we all know they did. But the baseball rule about performance-enhancing drugs was so unclear at that point that they almost kind of got away with it before it became law. Pete Rose broke not only the, the, the baseball law as it was written, it was the rule. It was the cardinal sin in the sport. That's the difference. Let's break on that note. We'll come back. You're on the block, ESPN Radio. This is On the Block with Brent Axe. Welcome back. You're on the block, ESPN Radio. It is presented by Surf Pro of North and East Onondaga. What are you doing in here, intern? You asked me to come in Where, here. Where's my latte? Uh, I forgot that outside with Seth. Jeez, come on. I can get it after. <laughs> Caramel macchiato, three shots, extra foam. You might be upset I only put two in. Get out of my stuff. <laughs> Charlie Desturco's here. Intern Charlie, also on the beat for the Daily Orange, covering SU Hoops. Go follow him. Go read his stuff. Get smart. What's happening, man? Hanging out, Just hanging, having a good time, doing the here. thing. You behaving yourself out there? Yeah, Seth's keeping me, kept keeping me in check. Seth tries, but you know, <laughs> fails miserably. I wanted to bring in Charlie. This is almost like Tuesdays with Maury. We have Wednesdays with Charlie talking some hoops. So Miami tomorrow, right? And then Syracuse goes on the road for three straight, four and one in ACC play. Is that surprising? Right where you thought they would be, or maybe somewhere in between? I think four and one was kind of a good estimate because you look at. Duke, you would have expected that to be the loss, and then them to beat Georgia Tech, Pittsburgh, and Notre Dame and Clemson. Clemson was uh, 50-50. I think 3-2, and 4-1 and one would have been great, but, I mean, they're in the most perfect place, and heading into Miami, they need to win this one before hitting the road, especially because the schedule gets tougher. The schedule gets tougher. You want to pile up ACC wins, yeah. and Miami's kind of straddling that quad three line right now, and Syracuse, correct me if I'm wrong, is 3-2 and two against quad three teams. You don't want another one of those. You don't want to add, and not only is Miami, but you've got a couple of teams that are probably going to end up in that category that are on your schedule, Boston College being one of them that are on the schedule upcoming here. So 
it's just one of those take care of business games. Miami's down to seven scholarship players. They are, I was reading today, they're the shortest team in the ACC. They're one of the worst rebounding teams in the ACC. But this is the part of the show where I have to attach the requisite uh, anybody can be anyone on any given day in ACC play tag. This, right. right? And, and and it becomes important, especially at home, yes. that Syracuse takes some of the job. Because if you look at the rest of their schedule, they have Florida State, Boston College, Louisville, Duke, and Virginia. Those are oh, all very, it? very, very hard home games. Yes. So winning and taking care of business against Miami, getting that extra ACC win into that road streak, that three-game uh, stretch is just just as important as that. Definitely. So, they go to Virginia Tech after that. And right. I was reading a stat today that Syracuse is not only certainly one of the better road teams in the ACC, they ha- they're they 3-0, true road yeah, games this year. They haven't lost outside of the state of New York. Exactly. Because they lost to Madison Square Garden. But. Which, somebody forward that to Doug Gottlieb, please. And yeah. Dick Vitale and anybody else that <laughs> loves to cite that stat. But, it, look, sometimes we make these things too complicated. Is it just as simple as they're good on the road because they've shot well on the road and they've made yeah. the shots? I mean, yeah, they made the shots. They rose to the occasion against Duke, against Ohio State. It was a must win. They did that same thing. And Notre Dame, I don't. I couldn't even explain Notre Dame. It was just, it, you see them just make their shots and then they can't do it at home. I don't know if it's the depth perception of the carry dome or it's just the road game gets them more amped. I don't know. Virginia Tech hasn't lost at home this year. And right. not only have they not lost at home, nobody's come within 10 points of them. Buzz Williams, the way he's built that team, that arena, all that sounds intimidating, but having Syracuse go to Duke, go to Ohio State, win in South Bend, I know Notre Dame's maybe not what we thought they would be, not an easy place to play. So to use an old expression from a great movie, they got that going for them, which is nice. To play two games in three days in that setting, Miami first, Virginia Tech second, look, that's why I love following the ebb and flow of the ACC. You've got to be on your game. You've got to shoot well. Your defense has to start coming around. But one guy who has been incredible these past, not only past couple games, but all season, particularly these last two games, though, is what is it about Tyus Battle? What has gotten into him in the last two games? Is he backing off on his three-point shot? Does he kind of recognize where he's most successful here? Why have we seen this guy earn his third ACC Player of the Week award? I think it's more just... Like you said, he's kind of not shooting as many threes, and he's kind of attacking the the paint, and he's realizing that if Syracuse is going to have any success, it's going to be with him scoring 20-plus points a game, with him driving and scoring and taking all the shots. I mean, he took the most shots of any player, and he should be taking the most shots of any player every single game. And I think in the beginning of the season, he was playing point guard because Frank Howard wasn't there, and he kind of wanted to be like Frank Howard and didn't want to be that guy. And over time with Frank being healthy and with him kind of settling into his role and getting used to the ebb and flow of things, he's kind of taken over, realizes for Syracuse to win, he has to do that. Once upon a time, the thought of Tyus Battle at point guard was a foreign concept, as was described on this show. I wanted to ask you, if it came down to it, if you had to in even a limited role, could he play a little point guard no. for you? No. No point? He, he couldn't do it? I can't believe you'd even ask that question. <laughs> Why is that? He's never played point guard in his life. He's been a three or two his whole life. Well, that answers that question, I guess. I mean, <laughs> how do you, because our point guards don't play well, doesn't mean we can move somebody over there that's never played there. Well, that's you know that's why I asked it. I wanted to know what his well, background was and, and if he could do it. So I, there well, you go. That answers that. 
<laughs> I thought you knew enough about basketball. You would know the answer to that. So. Well, that's why you, that's why I ask the question sometimes. I guess I we're guess. we're talking to Jim Beheim here on ESPN Radio, and uh, don't Jim, it, please don't ask me if Tyler Line can play point. Uh, I don't think <laughs> he can play point. I think oh, you, well, I, so I, you do that. I okay. think I think I'm confident Tyler Lyon's not going to okay. play point. Yeah. All so right. once an absurd. Concept. Right. Now, to be fair, that was two years ago, different team, different lineup type. Certainly not yeah. exactly, not as experienced as a player, but I just always get a kick out of it that what was once thought to be absurd in the head coach's thought is now necessary. Yeah. He had to slide over there in the last game. You brought it up earlier in the season. Frank was injured, so you just count on Tyus to be able to do that. He's obviously at his best when he's not at the point, but uh, in, you're learning about the business. You're in college, right? So in the interest of self-promotion, you wrote something about Tyus, yeah. the point guard, that we're going to read tomorrow, right? Right, yeah. It'll be in the Daily Orange tomorrow. But it's kind of funny because when I when people ask Jim about Tyus playing point guard, he's like, oh, he's not a point guard. He just gets the ball and brings the ball up the court. So he does the functions of the point guard, but he's the shooting guard. Correct. It, nothing ever really makes sense at that part. But, I mean, when you look at it, Frank Howard needs time to, to sit out. He's still not at that dominant nature that he was against Mar- in March Madness last season. And Jalen Carey has been not great. He's against Duke. He turned the ball over twice in 30 seconds right after Frank picked up two fouls. And it was almost necessary for Tyus to take the ball up because of the on-ball pressure. And he's one of the guys that can handle it. I mean, it, it, when you look at it, it also, you know, he, he brings the ball up. He's the point guard. Maybe he's not, you know, set in stone point guard in Jim's mind. But altogether, he does the function. And that also allows Buddy Beheim to play right. and, and shoot threes, and, and that's been working recently. We've got a lot more to go here. We've got a couple months, but I don't know if I will like anything more than Marek Dolzhai being compared to Magic Johnson. Yeah. Like That just made my I was in that scrum. whole season. You were there. <laughs> I was like, I was like what is O'Shea that? doing? <laughs> it's, it's amazing that he did that. Look, he's he's playing great. He's making some great passes, but we're, we're seeing every time you look at the box score recently, you know, you look in all the categories, and he's filling every one of them. Right. Uh, my colleague Donna DeToto at Syracuse.com had a great piece about his shooting and how that's coming along. But right now you've you've got a very versatile player that you've got to pay attention to on all ends of the floor. Right, yeah. When he came into Syracuse last year, I wrote a freshman profile on him. And the one thing that Adrian Autry, Coach Autry, said at the time was this guy is has a huge high IQ, and it's one of the things that will stick out as you see the season progress. And, of course, we saw that down the stretch of conference play that last season – Marek took that next step, and then this season we've kind of seen him really function as a, as a great passer. These backdoor cuts that he says are open, when you look at it, these guys are not open no, when he's throwing he's these balls. But he's fitting he's fitting it through the, the holes, and he's making these plays that you know you wouldn't expect a six foot ten forward to to make. And I, I think that comes from his his experience overseas, and he is probably, if not the most, one of the most intelligent players on that court. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate the insight. Need that coffee now? Latte now! (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye.